Welcome to the 100th episode of the State of the Markets podcast. It has been an extreme pleasure to host these jointly with Paul Rodriguez, and it has been an extreme pleasure to engage and react and respond to so many intelligent and exquisitely taste people out there who appreciate the show. So thank you for all of the engagement. Thank you for all of your questions and comments and support. And we look forward to number 200. Thank you, Tim. I second that. And in order to celebrate our 100th episode, we're going to be giving away a hard to find book. This book was recommended by this week's guest and we'll have details at the end of the show. And our very special guest is Luke Johnson. He's the chairman of Risk Capital Partners and former chairman of Pizza Express, the Royal Society of Arts and Channel 4. He also writes a weekly column for the Sunday Times. Luke Johnson, a pleasure to have you on what is going to be our, our hundredth podcast, State of the Markets. You're known for a, a number of things, as I guess as a serial entrepreneur. Your very first experience, I understand, was in nightclubs. Is that right? It was. It was while I was university 18 and in Oxford, and a friend and I wanted to hold parties, but our colleges forbade us. So we essentially took over a local nightclub on a Monday evening to host our parties. And it turned into a business by accident. From there, other things like Pizza Express and so forth and so on have flowed. Um, at the time, we were both medics, although we both got degrees. Neither of us went into medicine as a career uh, because we both had discovered business and the joys and perils of entrepreneurialism. Um, and so that's what we've made our careers in. And... Um, since then, I've mostly concentrated on hospitality, so restaurants and bars and nightclubs and hotels and travel and uh, everything from bingo to bowling alleys um, and a lot in between. Uh, although I have made investments and been involved in other businesses such as transport and healthcare, I would say the majority of my time has been spent in food and drink and such like. What what is it about the rest? What was it that attracted you to the restaurant scene as a as an investor? Because yeah, I mean, I, I very much appreciate restaurants, but uh, I I would have thought even before the COVID pandemic, uh, it's a tough bit. It's a it's a very tough business to be in, and I imagine it's going to be practically nigh on impossible uh, once as and when lockdown ever gets lifted. Well, I think like a lot of people, my involvement in it came out not through design but accident. I think certainly in the 1980s when I was exploring career options and, you know, I initially tried to go into advertising and so forth, it was pre-internet and it was harder to get information about different jobs and livelihoods and my involvement in restaurants and pubs and so forth has not been by design. Um, having said that, I've loved it because it's social. Uh, I've loved it because, you know, if you uh, run good venues, you are giving people pleasure. And many people, as you just said, adore restaurants. It's a big hobby. And many of the happiest times of their lives are spent in eating places and uh, yeah. so forth. Um, it is a very large industry in England alone. Uh, I reckon the total food, drink, leisure industry eating out of home, eating and drinking out of home is worth about £120 billion a year. Uh, Which is huge. Although, yes. And although you are right, it's not got the highest returns or, or margins 
compared to some things, um, it isn't going away. It may shrink, and I fear quite a lot of businesses will go broke because of lockdown and COVID. Um, they are more likely than not going to be smaller private businesses, which many of which are um, marginally profitable. It's highly fragmented still in many sectors, not things like fast food, uh, but areas like casual dining, as it's called, fine dining, um, cafes, coffee shops. You know, there are so many aspects to it. I also like it because it's full of innovation. Mm. There are, there's constant demand for new ideas and tastes and fashions. I like it because, perversely, it involves employing a lot of people. And although that comes with much agony, at the same time, I think... You know, one is, if you look at the social purpose of entrepreneurs, ultimately, I think, you know, there are many goods that they deliver, such as tax generation, but the most important, single most vital aspect of their role in society is creating jobs. Mm. And, um, you know, three and a half million people plus work in the total food, drink, leisure sector, if you include some of the downstream suppliers. Uh, so it's it's you know almost one of the largest providers of work, and um, you know it's vital to the overall economy. And obviously, it's been very hard hit by this crisis, but it will recover. The resilience of people in it, the entrepreneurial spirit one so often witnesses of people who have been evolving and uh, adapting their businesses to these extreme conditions um, is impressive and it shows the dynamism and the stamina of many of the participants and owners and uh, again that's something I admire and enjoy so it's not as sophisticated as the finance industry or uh, high tech but nevertheless I think it's fun and I think it's something one can be proud of there is nothing in my business career that's beaten being involved in starting from scratch a new cafe cafe or, or bar or restaurant or other entertainment venue and seeing it succeed and people enjoying themselves, it can be a good business. I think mm-hmm. probably it's fair to say that in the 90s and early 2000s, margins and returns were better. That's partly because there was less competition. It's also because I think um, it was pre minimum and living wage, so labour was not as expensive, and uh, demand was mostly pretty buoyant. Unquestionably, some markets are now saturated, and the industry as a whole is facing tough times, but it will evolve, and I think that human beings are social animals, and once we we adjust as a society to um, this latest panic, then uh, I think people will go back to going out to eat and drink and and socialise as they have done for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I don't think that's going to end. Can you see yourself uh, being involved in a brand new venture after um, whatever passes for normality resumes in the weeks and months to come? Well, I have capital to invest. I still have the appetite to create new uh, enterprises. I enjoy partnering with founders and entrepreneurs in growing their businesses. Um, I tend these days to focus my capital and energies on 
growing but existing uh, businesses rather mm. than pure startups simply because um, the risks of creating something from scratch are very high so the failure rate in the early years is is considerable and mm. um, you know I'm 58 I don't have that much time I, in my experience any business that really works takes five to ten years to develop and uh, so I would rather back things where the model's been proven. And uh, as I see it, I'm providing development capital rather than startup venture capital. I think that obviously businesses change as they grow. And so sometimes one might, for example, buy a business that is flawed but can be improved upon or that has critical mass but is certainly not perfect. But I... I suppose I like things that have reasonable scale. Um, I do still occasionally get involved in things that are more as pure startups, but it's not my, it's almost more for enjoyment than as a serious occupation because I think they're very difficult. And um, as I say, the failure rate is generally very high. And although I greatly admire the animal spirits of entrepreneurs who have the energy to uh, invent things and create things from scratch. I think probably it's best done when people are in their 20s and 30s mm. rather than people like me who are a bit cynical and, you know, long in the tooth. They say you learn more from mistakes than your successes. Would you agree with that? Yeah, probably. I've, I've made a lot of mistakes over the years, far too many, and I care to try and forget a lot of them because they're too painful. But unfortunately, as with life in general, if uh, 10 people make a comment to you and one of them is a criticism and nine a praise, the thing you will remember is the criticism. And unfortunately, I think your failures burn themselves into your memory. And also, I think there is rather a perhaps unhealthy obsession in the world amongst many uh, for scandal and failure in life in general. I suppose it's the old um, Schadenfreude uh, instinct. And so you're rarely allowed to forget your failures uh, and probably you should remember them because uh, you don't want to repeat them. No one chooses failure. We shouldn't celebrate failure, but obviously it's a necessary part of the journey because no one always enjoys great success. Uh, if you don't have the odd mistake, then you're not trying hard enough. You're not experimenting. And innovation and trying new things inevitably involves things not working and so for society to progress for us to devise new solutions to problems that will involve trial and error and that means errors and the very nature of capitalism is entrepreneurs starting businesses they don't succeed they close someone else tries new things the Assets are redeployed. It's the basis of Schumpeter's creative destruction philosophy. And I think to a fair degree, it's what applies in any proper market, the dynamics of assets and capital being diverted to their highest, best use. And one of the possible mistakes of recent times with very low interest rates is the business of keeping alive zombie companies that are essentially providing negative returns, but are propped up through uh, cheap capital. And so, you know, they're not 
the most efficient, best use of that money. And actually, for society to advance, what we need is the cash to flow to ingenious new purposes and and more productive ways of doing things. And that does involve businesses going bust. I think one of the great advantages the private sector has over the public sector is the peril of bankruptcy. Uh, otherwise, you get misallocation. And when governments get involved in trying to choose winners, this is what normally happens to taxpayer cash. It gets deployed in the wrong places, whereas the brutality of capitalism, whereby companies succeed or fail, is, I think, a, a necessary corrective to the idea that governments with their top-down ingenuity are the best way of managing society's resources. They're simply not. And free markets and the opportunity that is available to everyone in proper civilized democracies where they can succeed or fail with their own enterprise and the combination of that thousands and hundreds of thousands and even millions of times is what delivers better value to the consumer and ultimately returns to the most ingenious investors and progress in terms of new technology, more productive uses of the, of the Earth's resources and so forth. Do you, do you really think we have, we operate in a, a proper free market system now, though? The, one of the things that I found most distressing about this, this crisis is that well, I, one of our, our previous guests, Stephen Wilkinson, um, coined the phrase crapitalism to describe you know, <laughs> the, the current, current state of you know, the market. Um, in other words, crony, crony capitalism that came in uh, as part of the sort of the bailouts uh, that took place in 2008 and afterwards. The, the, the great opportunity is I, one of the great opportunities as I saw it at Brexit was that it enabled us to have a clean break from this sort of, you know, over bureaucratic super state on, you know, abroad and and have a sort of a bonfire of the a bonfire of red tape. But unfortunately, the, the pandemic, if anything, seems to have, if you like, reinforced the, you know, the, the, the role and the intervention of the big state. So far from 2020, and subsequent years being an example of sort of shrinking government, we're going to end up with a bigger bigger government than ever, tragically. That could be the consequence. Uh, I, in my article for the Sunday Times last week, it, it had in the headline, Lockdown Socialism, and this is what we might be faced with, and it's why business people and entrepreneurs and indeed investors need to be on the march asserting the value they contribute and holding the politicians and the public sector to account. You know, the private sector accounts for 85% of jobs in the workforce. The public sector a mere 15%. And yet, to a fair degree, in political and cultural terms, the public sector are our overlords more than ever. And the cult clapping on a Thursday evening for the NHS is a symptom of that worship of the public sector the union bosses being more assertive. It's very unhealthy. I agree. I think crony capitalism is one of the many possible consequences of the pandemic. Clearly, the government felt, and I think most of us agreed, that they needed to intervene 
when they decided to do the lockdown. In hindsight, should we have done the lockdown? Quite possibly not. But that's what they decided to do in a hurry, in a panic. Mm. And as a consequence, a great many businesses would have literally, I mean, very large proportion, I would say, of businesses would have closed for good if they had not provided relief like uh, furloughing for staff. Uh, of course, the 8 million on furlough currently, I think at least 2 million of them will be made redundant in the coming mm. months. So it was an artificial and temporary stimulus that actually didn't really save jobs permanently because the damage to companies had already been done by the lockdown and um, either those companies are shrinking or closing for good. Do you think that one of the outcomes uh, of of this, this current crisis could be that the, the composition of, of government and the composition of cabinet should change in a way that basically encourages more, for example, representatives from the world of science and, and fewer Oxford PPE types? Well, I hope so, yes. As a very long time ago, admittedly, scientist from Oxford, although I didn't pursue a career in academia, the fact that I have more of a life science qualification than the entire cabinet put together... <laughs> It's embarrassing, frankly. And also, for the last seven or eight years, I've chaired a very prominent and successful non-profit medical laboratory called the Institute for Cancer Research. It's based in London and Sutton. and We employ roughly 900 scientists, and we are one of the top five to ten cancer research centres in the world. <clears throat> and so, having chaired that organisation for the last, obviously, a pro bono role, for the last eight years, I have had quite a lot of regular interaction with very eminent scientists. And I worry that perhaps our government, the cabinet, have not. And mm. so I fear that the way in which they interacted with SAGE and the other committees was not challenging them in the slightest, but taking their every word as gospel and this sort of almost religious reverence for the science, as if there's one part only, and mm. as if scientists aren't humans, and as if scientists are infallible, all of which we know to be junk. And, um, you know, the, the scandal, I feel, of Imperial College's modelling and the half a million deaths that were we were at risk from suffering from, which I think was a complete nonsense, but I noticed that in his returning speech on the Sunday evening, Boris repeated that number, which shows that it's front of his mind. And I am sure that that was the figure that stuck, that led him to pursue uh, the, the lockdown when he did and frightened the country into this extraordinary state of fear, more than any other country, which itself, you know, as you will know, if a businessman or woman loses his or her confidence, then frankly, they cannot assume leadership and confidence is critical not just to commercial success but almost any walk of life success and I, I worry greatly that the country's lost its confidence in terms of even stepping outside the house media are partly to blame possibly substantially to blame I also think the government have led the charge and they now need to do the opposite and say you know what we've got the stats they're in for people of, of reasonable health under the age of 60, the risks are very low indeed. You need to stop being frightened. 
The, con- the concern I, I have is that, uh, as you say, Boris effectively seems to have doubled down rather than sort of reversed course. And the, the sunk costs fallacy means that they're not going, you know, the lockdown will happen, the, the reversal of the lockdown will happen later rather than earlier, precisely because they won't admit that they were wrong in the first place. Of course, I'm afraid that this is a, a, a very prevalent tendency in human behaviour. And more so, I think, it happens when you've got politicians who want a particular narrative to be um, maintained in order to uh, defend their decisions. And uh, one has a a sort of sad degree of certainty that that is what this government are now indulging in. So they are trying to protect their position and justify what they've done and thinking about, you know, the inevitable inquiries and so forth and so on. And ultimately, I've always found that dealing with any MP, everything ultimately comes down to, will I get re-elected at the next election? Mm. I'm afraid. And so there is that perennial obsession of every single MP in government. I think it's front of mind now for Boris because he's sinking in the ratings dramatically. You worry that that means, yes, he's going to double down and cause more damage, more companies to go bust, more people to essentially lose their jobs. Because every single day costs us billions. Every single day, I think, you know, a certain number of entrepreneurs just give up, say, why am I bothering? And, you know, the losses that accumulate, the arrears of unpaid bills become insurmountable after a certain time for businesses. And it's very depressing to see. It's, it's you know, this massive loss in confidence and productivity. You know, one feels that somehow a great deal of it is so unnecessary that the exaggeration of the threat and the obsession with the disease and all the collateral damage, and I don't just mean economic, but, you know, the potential 18,000 cancer victims that might die who haven't been treated or diagnosed, uh, the people who are suffering serious mental problems because of this awful isolation. Uh, the people who, uh, the children's education that's suffered and so forth and so on. So there are many, many damaging aspects to just shutting down society like, mm. like they've done. What would you say makes a good business and what keeps a business good? A good business has many aspects. So clearly it needs good founders and managers, leaders who are, you know, committed and passionate and can take calculated risks and are great motivators and all these other personality traits. I think it needs a good business model that makes economic sense with, you know, ideally quite high gross and net margins. It needs to be able to make enough return and profit such that it becomes self-sustaining. And so it does need to generate cash. I think, you know, it needs competitive advantages whether that be a brand or a patent or a particular location or some other aspect to it that is, uh, you know, the barriers to entry for competitors aren't too low. I think it needs momentum. So a business, you know, reaches a point where it suddenly becomes a positive reinforcement, if you like, a virtuous cycle, which I think is one of the things you can see in a business that's doing well. Uh, I don't mean momentum in a sort of share price sense. I think they call it the flywheel effect in the States. 
Yeah, critical mass. That's a very good way of putting it. And occasionally you see it in business. You just sense looking at it overall. I, I think every business, when you do due diligence, is completely different. And, you know, there are many, many aspects and you will never get ever a perfect business, just as all of us as humans are flawed. So every business has plenty of defects. And that is rather why I know business or hardly any businesses last forever because um, eventually their time comes and they are overwhelmed by changes in behavior or technology or competition. So I'm not saying that, you know, good businesses can't last for 25 or even 50 years, but they need to evolve steadily. They cannot stand still. They need to move with the times and adjust to changing markets and tastes and all the rest of it. I think good businesses are very hard to find. And often they're very expensive. And so one comes up against this tough decision, you know, do I pay a very high multiple for what is, I think, a very good business? Or, and my temptation has always been more inclined to search for value. So unloved, overlooked, uh, neglected assets and businesses that at least appear cheap. Quite often that can be misleading because they're cheap for a reason. But sometimes you can find bargains. Uh, so mine has always been a bargain mentality because I hate paying very high prices for things. I'm too mean. <laughs> on a on a related note, would you say that a an, an entrepreneur or a, a good entrepreneur is 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 born or made? I think made. I don't think there's an entrepreneurial gene. I think though that it starts very early. Someone I respected, who I met once, an academic in America who studied entrepreneurs a great deal, said that he thinks it normally happens, you know, starting at the kitchen table where almost certainly one or other parent or family, friends or relatives are there discussing at, at um, breakfast time, you know, numbers and business and customers and markets and selling and all the other aspects of what it takes to grow a company. And I think it gets inculcated from a relatively young age, the idea of self-employment, the idea of taking risks, the idea of, um, you know, caring about customers and so forth and so on, collecting debts, all the nitty gritty that are involved in business. I don't think that's essential. I never had it. My father's a writer. My mother wasn't in business at all. So there was no people in my background that were in business, but I discovered it at 18. So I was lucky enough to see entrepreneurialism in action at that age and i think it is one of those games where you you are lucky if you can start younger because at that age you have fewer responsibilities you can take more risks that is an important ingredient i think there, there's no limit to the number of entrepreneurs probably only a small percentage of people actually have the ambition and desire and hunger to grow a business of scale. But, you know, lots of societies have quite a high proportion of people who are working for themselves in one form or another, even if they're freelance. And I think the self-determination and the ability to control your own destiny, as well as obviously the possibility of you making a very good living, is a great deal of the attraction. And I have, for decades, abhorred the idea for myself of working for others, of being an employee, of being a cog in a giant machine, you know, avoiding the bureaucracy and office politics 
and all the other horrors that go with large companies that so many people do work for is, I think, a very important component of being an entrepreneur and self-employment. Would you say it's a weakness of, of the British educational system that, at least from, from anecdotal personal experience, the schools show no interest in encouraging people to, to behave like entrepreneurs? It's pretty much taken as read that everyone's going to end up as an employee once they, once they leave. I think there's some truth in that. I fear it's not just Britain. I think that schools by their nature, you know, generally speaking, teachers are public servants. So they are, you know, predisposed towards left of centre politics and big government and are fearful and or ignorant of the private sector. Also, schools and the educational system are mostly large not-for-profit uh, entities that are the opposite extreme, if you like, of uh, working for yourself and businesses. I wouldn't say all schools are like that, or indeed all classes. So I have quite often spoken in classrooms to groups of teenagers, for example, and I have pitched to them the idea of working for themselves and starting a business. And, you know, should we do a business plan together as a class? And the teachers are vary. So I think like every school, it's about, you know, the teachers themselves as individuals. And if they're enlightened mm. enough to realize that, you know, the key to a successful society is innovation and entrepreneurialism and progressive living standards comes through people taking risks and growing businesses and creating jobs, then they get it. Unfortunately, as we all know, too many on the left fall for all the old bad ideas of, you know, zero-sum game and, you know, probably all tycoons are wicked and thinking that the profit motive is evil and all these useless, ignorant concepts. And unfortunately, left-wing teachers' unions and a lot of the culture that surrounds not just schools but universities is opposed to the private sector. And... That is most unfortunate. And so there is a battle of ideas, hearts and minds to be won in both even primary, but certainly secondary education and uh, further and higher education, where business people and others in the private sector need to roll their sleeves up and go out and convince young people that actually you should be ambitious and say, pursue your ideas and dreams. You can create a new venture out of this be bold, take risks, don't spend your life working for the man. But, but, you know, actually it can be more satisfying pursuing your own path. If you could go back in time and give yourself some advice as your younger self, what would you impart? Probably that I should have gone into an area like technology. I think that is where the great fortunes and the real advances in society have been over the last certainly in the last two decades and probably the last three. Uh, as you pointed out earlier, hospitality is not the easiest of industries. So I think I would have done that. I think taken more risks at certain strategic points, I think, although I am a risk taker by nature, I can also be cautious. And sometimes you need to, you know, bet the farm, as they say. Uh, I haven't often done that and probably I should have you know, definite disproportionate effort towards, you know, 
career and work and business if you want to succeed. And, you know, I have taken that choice over the decades. The sort of demon of ambition has bedeviled me all my career. And that is the way I'm built, I fear. And so be it, you know, you can't pretend to be someone you're not. There's potentially still quite a lot of opportunity in the area of, of uh, technology. I mean, areas such as genetics and machine learning. Yes, I mean, the area where I have spent money in the last few years and I have had success in the past is healthcare. You know, I did study physiology. I have chaired a, a new medical school at Buckingham, whose um, founder was, is actually now the newly famous Carol, Dr. Carol Cora. I also built up, co-founded a big healthcare business called Integrated Dental Holdings, which was the largest chain of dental practices in the country. Uh, and um, a few years ago, it was valued as part of a billion pounds. Um, sadly, I'd sold my shares by then, but I, I built it up with a dental partner over 10 years. And I have a another healthcare business called Extral, which is involved in radiotherapy. Uh, and obviously, I've been involved with the Institute of Cancer Research for the last seven or eight years. So I am interested in healthcare, and unquestionably, one sector that sadly will benefit from this pandemic is healthcare spending in general. Curiously, not running private hospitals, which I think are suffering very badly, particularly in America, but developing new drugs and vaccines. So I think if there is any sector in the general tech space, it will be med tech, where I have some degree of understanding and credibility. I suppose the reason why I would restrict my investing and in activities to something like that rather than, say, AI, is that I think I'm a believer in what I call domain knowledge, which is having a reasonable understanding of what you're dealing with. And given that, um, you know, I, I did science A-levels, but that was it as far as my technology expertise goes and i just am fearful of getting involved in technical businesses where you don't actually have the expertise or the scientific knowledge that's relevant whereas at least in healthcare i have a reasonable understanding i would certainly not class myself as anything close to being professional but i have at least a degree of authority. I think in private equity investing, generally speaking these days, unless you've got a big fund already, you need to have a bit of a speciality. If you're a generalist, then you probably won't get the deal flow and you won't necessarily know what you're doing when you do get. Have you invested in markets outside the UK? The the reason I ask is that for, I mean, we within my business, we we invest globally on, we want to have the largest opportunity set possible, albeit in my context, I'm talking about listed equities rather than, rather than private businesses. And the, the area that we find by far the most compelling, both in terms of potential growth, but also valuation from a bottom-up basis is Asia, and notably markets like Japan and Vietnam. Would, would anything there potentially interest you? Um, the answer is it might. Again, you know, am I an expert in Japan? No, I've been three times and I feel that there are so many aspects to it where I'd be the ignorant foreigner who, so to speak, would be taken for a ride. Uh, you know, it is impressive, for example, how they've handled this pandemic and it shows mm. the country in its strengths, the way in which they have dealt with crises of various sorts. They've 
suffered from in the past. They're very industrious, very well educated, and uh, very commercial people, the Japanese. So I greatly admire them, actually. You're probably right. And it's a question of, you know, could I make that fit with my life? In terms, I would feel、mm. the need to go to Japan or Vietnam or wherever it was. You know, how does that work for me, starting at 58, becoming an expert in Asia? You've probably been doing it for a decade or even more. And therefore, I've developed contacts and,、uh, you know, understanding that I would lack.、Um, I, I think you're absolutely right to the extent that the way, we, the way we've gone about it is by partnering with people who are based, you know, they've got boots on the ground and they, they share our mindset. That, that strikes us as being the best way of doing it because otherwise, being based in London, I think you're absolutely right. There's, you know, you're just going to be treated like,、uh, you know, like a sort of ignorant foreigner if you're not careful. Yes, yes. The place I have invested a bit over the years and I've done okay. I've probably made a net profit, although I've also lost money as well as make it. Is America? I think it's a very dynamic economy. It's very large, and there are always endless opportunities. And、uh, you know, I think because of the language and culture, it's more accessible, frankly, than somewhere like Japan for someone like me.、Um, sure. It's not without its challenges, of course, apart from just the tyranny of distance, because again, you know, there's lots of local money and. Why is your cash special? If you see what I mean.、Yeah. Are you concerned about the way things are developing at a, a sort of geopolitical level with relation to trade and relations between the US and China? It depends how worried you want to be. I think that I've generally pursued a belief that you should try not to worry about things that are completely beyond your control. Sure, that's a, that's a very a very stoic approach. Yes,、uh, otherwise I think you can't sleep at night. Uh, most people of mine struggle with sleeping anyhow, but、um, adding that to the mix, the answer is: if one wanted to get serious about it, yes, I think there's a there's a trajectory that could be very gloomy, whereby the increasing aggressiveness of the Chinese and、uh, so forth、uh, just carries on, and we enter some new Cold War, whereby you know globalization goes sharply into reverse. China's the workshop of the world, so therefore. Weaning ourselves off that supply is going to be exceedingly difficult,、mm-hmm. and virtually nowhere else can possibly replace it in terms of its efficiency and scale of operations. And just building up the infrastructure in someone like India, you know, would take decades. And I've been involved in enough businesses that source from Asia to know that many, many categories, China is still. Totally dominant in terms、yeah. of its ability in logistics and manpower and investment and productivity. So it will be a very painful transition if we decide to reduce our dependence on China. Having said that, it may well be necessary. I think China is a very dangerous country and very scary. And its behaviour over the pandemic is disgraceful, but not surprising. You know, I think the world's worst innovation, invention possibly ever,、uh, man-made at least, has been communism.、Uh, all it's ever led to is is potentially hundreds of millions of deaths, very frequently deaths of people in the country itself rather than all.、Mm-hmm. And you know, probably the Communist Party of of China has killed more people than any other. Political organisation ever, even more than the Nazis,、mm. even more than the、um, communists in Russia, and yet that doesn't stop them in the slightest. 
I think life there is incredibly cheap and they they see everywhere that isn't like them as potentially the enemy and they have big ambitions. It's pretty frightening. So one could get oneself alarmed. Obviously, one has no influence over it whatsoever. So therefore, lying awake at night fretting is not very productive. Sure. I mean, you, you raise a really interesting point, which is and which brings me back to, you know, the, my, my traditional lashing of the educational system, which is it is it is dis- surely disgraceful that the sight of the, the hammer and sickle is not treated in this country the same way as the swastika is. But those in, 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 in education practically venerate uh, a socialism, if, if not outright communism. Base ignorance and sort of facile prejudice amongst certain intellectuals. I, I think there are more people than there used to be who are raising the awareness of communist terror over the certainly the 20th century. And I never miss an opportunity in social media and other contexts to remind people of the tens of millions murdered by Stalin and Mao and others. Mm. It's too easy to forget here, a long way from all that horror of the you know, continued brutality of these regimes. It will be very interesting. What I think might work vis-a-vis China is if absolutely more or less the rest of the world came together and said, you have caused, or rather, you have um, increased the untold damage of this pandemic by your behaviour early in the crisis. And there needs to be a reckoning in various ways. Mm. And maybe, maybe China will then have to listen. And maybe, maybe there might be some regime change. I fear that Chinese people are so brainwashed and students and others that they will, because they associate China and the Chinese Communist Party as one, they will defend China. In fact, they're just defending the Communist Party, but Mm. they will see it as the same thing. You're passionate about helping other people start up their own businesses and wanted to talk about your, your new book, Start It Up. But just before that, I enjoy watching Dragon's Den to find ideas for other people have come up for business first of all what do you think of the show and if you were invited to be a dragon would you would you consider it well funnily enough the producer of it the very first producer is a bit of a mate he's now gone to hollywood he asked me to be one of the first dragons and because i'd just been appointed in 2004 to be chairman of channel four i felt it was a conflict so i couldn't because <laughs> obviously it's a bbc show and i thought it'd be too weird for the chairman of channel four to be on a bbc show i'm sort of glad i didn't do it because from the dragons, from what I've read about them, it becomes a sort of overwhelming aspect of their life and their mm. business careers tend to suffer as a consequence. They get too distracted by the publicity and all. I think net it's a good thing, the programme. I've had my reservations about it over the years because it does trivialise investment and entrepreneurs. Originally, it was classed by the BBC as a business program, it is now classed as entertainment. Mm. And I think Mm. that's how it should be seen. However, I think it is a bit of a reminder for millions of people, because it's still very popular, that business is about taking risks, business is about new ideas, business is about people who, you know, have to raise money and 
pitch to investors and so forth. So I think it's raised awareness of the whole game, if you like. So on, on balance, I approve. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to start up a business, would be the first thing you give them a copy of your book? <laughs> well, I've given away a few over the years. Um, you know, you need to get them out there somehow, don't you? Uh, <laughs> well, I think there are a lot of good business books, and I'm not suggesting for a second mine is the best. It's not by any means right for, for all entrepreneurs or people starting a business. I think reading about how businesses start, finding role models and uh, examples and where appropriate technical advice about how to incorporate a business or get a bank loan or whatever it is, is essential. And doing your homework in any walk of life is, you know, important, obviously. And I have, I have an extraordinarily large library of many thousands of business books because having written a weekly business column for decades, I need it as material, you see, so to do research and all. So that, I've got a, probably the, most of the startup business books ever written, I'd say, in my library somewhere or other. There's a great quote by Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's right-hand man, where he sings the praises of a, a good business biography, which is, you know, you can learn learn the lessons of a, someone who's had a lifetime in business, hopefully successful, and all for the price of you know, $10, $20. It's, it's, a, it's the best bargain in the world. Yes. A number of people who I respect in business have said there is nothing more important than role models in general, both a personal role model, i.e. a mentor, whoever it is, or someone, as I mentioned, at the kitchen table, but also ones you read and study about. And I completely agree about that. I think that we have got actually better over the decades in Britain at providing more role models. And I love, for example, for example, this year, although it's not something that you know, he's all good. It, top of the rich list this year, James Dyson, an inventor. Yes. Possibly the most famous living inventor in the world, arguably, mm. maybe alongside Elon Musk. And I think what he's achieved, building organically, still a family business, vastly profitable, very innovative, it's fantastic. And he is so much better a role model top of that list than someone who inherited wealth, you know, Duke of Westminster, or someone who, you know, is a financial engineer. James Dyson is a genuine entrepreneur inventor. And I think it's great that he is now the most successful business person in the country. On your website, you've got uh, 20 business books and that are listed as your favourite. And what I like about them is a lot of the, they seem to be quite old books, which I, I think is uh, which is a very good sign. So it's not just the latest and greatest books, and some are, are more to do with speculation. If you had your time again, would you ever consider being um, a, a trader? You, you obviously have a, a joint interest in both investing in business and the financial markets, from what I can see from your your book choice. Yes, um, I don't think a trader has ever been my mentality because I've always preferred more involvement and uh, concentrated portfolio of investments and longer term investments. So an, in, an investment manager, perhaps, mm. um, I, I think perhaps I should have gone into investment management. I'm not sure I would have been very good at it, but I think as a career option, it's not a bad one. Uh, I think you can learn a lot too, meeting companies understanding businesses on the stock market, etc. I, I was a stock breaking analyst early in my career in the 1980s. 
I have always had an interest in the stock market and I've taken a number of companies public and I think it has pluses and minuses. Uh, I had a very large failure a couple of years ago that was very public because it was a public company where there was a fraud and it went bankrupt. And that's one of the disadvantages of the stock market. But actually, the stock market has been impressing me in the last month or two, not in the sense of share prices per se, because I think the stock market is generally speaking overvalued relative to the Mm. challenges we have industrially ahead. But the speed and ease with which public companies that needed to raise money over the last six or eight weeks. It's been remarkable, actually. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens have done it in a matter of days with incredibly little information, actually, but investors have been there. And as private companies, it's a hell of a lot more difficult than that, generally speaking. It shows, now you might say, some of those companies shouldn't have been able to raise the money and are foolish investors. But on the other hand, the speed with which an awful lot of companies, including sectors that are struggling and under pressure, like hospitality, shows that being quoted has its uses. And I think having a vibrant stock market, public market, where individuals can buy shares in companies and there can be a form of people's capitalism is very important. And the decline of the stock market in recent years, because more companies have been using private equity and because the bureaucracy and regulatory burdens of being public and some of the issues about things don't work, which I know about in in public companies, is a bad thing. And, you know, there are far fewer public companies than there used to be. And I don't think that's good. I think that, you know, capital markets are essential as a means of funding innovation and growth. And public markets are a vital major element of that. Therefore, restoration of trust and a probably a streamlining of the regulation in public markets, uh, perhaps post leaving the EU, would be a good thing in my opinion. One of my favourite quotes is, people who say it cannot be done should not interrupt those who are doing. What is your favourite quote, business or otherwise? Well, (laughs) uh, now you've got me. Uh, I tell you what, I'm going to walk to my loo and I will read it for you. Okay. <laughs> part of a speech on the wall. Excellent. And so I'm going to cheat. Superb. It is not the critic who counts, not the man. Oh, oh I, I love this one. I love this one. strong man stumbles on where the doer of deeds could have done the better and so forth. Teddy Roosevelt's speech. T- Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. yeah. Eddie, a- April 23rd, 1910. The man in the arena. <laughs> Fantastic. And... Uh, I look at that every time I go to the loo. Excellent. My uh, my, my colleague, Killian uh, Connolly, was on um, The Million Pound Drop. I don't know if you ever saw it, which is a game show with Davina McCall. And he was on, yeah, on uh, te- ten years. Oh, of course, 10 years ago. And uh, he was on with his twin brother. And suffice to say, I shouldn't be saying this as an asset manager, but suffice to say, Killian managed to lose a million pounds fairly quickly. Um, but you know, he he gave he gave, he gave it a good a good effort, and I I, I when he came into the because he was he was locked down uh, as part of the process of being on the show, so he was uncontactable for a few days. And when he came into the office the next day, I I, I left a copy of that quote on his on his desk. I I find that immensely moving that quote. Yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, talking of which, one one of the books that I'm going to have to buy 
is how to lose a hundred million dollars and other valuable advice. That that is <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to say, I have to say you will struggle because it's been out of print for years. Yeah. And Right. I have written about it in the past, and uh-huh. uh, what what happened was it, it spiked. Copies went up to two hundred dollars, but it is a great read of the books in that list. Mm. It's unquestionably one of the best. It's very obscure, mm. uh, but the man who wrote it was an entrepreneur and a conglomerate builder. Uh, he writes very well, and it's highly readable. And although it's obviously dating from the sixties and seventies, I think there are still lots of lessons in it and he wasn't only a corporate manager he was also a pioneer in the world of venture capital effectively so he led a remarkable life and he's quite you know unlike a lot of american entrepreneurs especially when they write who are very boastful he's the opposite he's very modest as you can tell from the title of the book how to lose all that money (laughs) yes you know an impressive bloke i reckon i tried to get a copy of a book that was out of print um, in the mid '90s, it was a, it's a trading book that's still very hard to get hold of, and it goes for about a thousand dollars, like you say. And I managed to get a copy by contacting the British Library and asking them to to make a copy for me because they had one, and they do that as a service. So I just paid. Oh, I think it, I thought it, it, yeah, it was a, paid fifty dollars, and they sent me this book. It was like amazing. So Presumably, it's out of copyright for them to do that must be well i don't know how that works actually and that's a good question yeah they wouldn't be allowed to if it wasn't if it's out of copyright of course Mm, yeah they they may give money to the publisher the author there may be a way perhaps so so i think that they wouldn't obviously do it if it was breaching copyright although it's funny you should say that i've just watched a documentary about google um and their project to put all the libraries onto google books and the uh the, the kind of ramifications of that of whether it was a good thing or not and google are being sued by the publishers and and, and authors for that and that's still ongoing which is a very interesting area but i i assumed exactly as you have that yeah you you cannot copy a book it's copywritten um but as, as i think they obviously they would do it in a way that that would that would pay the uh, the author or, or the uh, the publisher. Yeah, it was yeah, somehow linked back. Interesting, interesting. Brilliant, Tim. Do you, should we go to media we're, picks? We're we we're, we're, we're already there, aren't we? We're already at the media picks. I'm just having a look at Luke's uh, recommended reading. This is one I'd give a shout out to, which I thought was an absolutely excellent book called The Puritan Gift by Kenneth Hopper and William Hopper, which I thought was extreme, extremely good reading, particularly in relation to after the financial crisis, the, the morality or, or lack of it in, in business. So that's that's an excellent book. So to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, I'll, I'll kick off then. There's a, there's a film that I saw uh, last week called A Good Woman is Hard to Find, um, which sounds like a Fergal Sharky lyric, but uh, it is actually, uh, in, some, in some cases, it's, it's, it's almost literally unwatchable. It's basically a kind of revenge drama, absolutely stunning performance by Sarah Bolger. I think it's set in, in Northern Ireland. If it is, it's probably not been sponsored by the Northern Ireland tourist board um revenge drama revenge tragedy extremely bloody i say at some points uh, unwatchable but um quite gripping uh, uh, almost palpable it's called a good woman is hard to find directed by a guy called abner pastol and it is one of the most intense uh gripping thrillers i think i've ever seen um it's not an easy watch as i say and there are let's just say a few um shallow grave moments 
in it, which uh, so you have to sort of watch from behind, sort of clenched fists. But uh, uh, quite extraordinary film, tremendous uh, performance by by Sarah Bolger as the lead, and uh, I just recommend it to anyone that's got a strong stomach. Excellent. Well, my recommendation is a series that I've just finished watching that that's on BBC. It's on the iPlay. You can catch it. It was on BBC Four. It's called A State of Happiness, and it's a Norwegian. And it's set in the 70s when um, Norway basically discovered North Sea oil. And so at its heart, which obviously partly interests me, is the story of the um, discovery and, and growth of an industry in its very early phases and how it happened. Um, but it's also got some good person. You know, it's, it's fictional in, in the characters portrayed, I think. And uh, it's really well done. And it's a rather uplifting and enjoyable watch, but sophisticated and surprisingly good quality, given that Norway is rather a small country and so forth. Uh, and, you know, a, a, an aspect of European development in the last few decades that I, I was sort of completely unaware of. And obviously you'll know that nowadays the I think I'm right in saying the Norwegian sovereign fund based on their oil wells is practically the largest in the world, isn't it? Certainly one of them, yes. Luke Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Our hundredth show. We've been blessed by your your presence. Thank you. And it's well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. And it's also Tim's birthday as well, so it's like... Happy uh, birthday, Tim. Thank you very much. I, I, I can die happy now. <laughs> wish happy, happy birthday on the 100th show by Luke Johnson. It's <laughs> Having a birthday in lockdown is not ideal, is it? Because one can't it, quite have a big birthday party, but anyway, it's maybe, not maybe in a few weeks' time. It's not ideal, but I will give a shout-out to Bottle Apostle in Primrose Hill, which is where I'm just about to go to, to purchase the appropriate... Um, libations. Very good luck. It's a very good off license. And they've got they've got and they've, and they've, and they've got stayed a, open as well. Well, exactly. So a combination of bottle apostle and Deliveroo has has made all my Christmases come at once for the last two months. And they they also have a particularly nice range of English champagnes, which is uh, where I'm going to be headed now. So cheers, everybody. Cheers, okay. Tim. Cheers. <laughs> all, all the thanks, very best. Luke. Thanks, Luke. Many thanks. So for our 100th episode, we will be giving away a copy of How to Lose $100 Million and Other Valuable Advice by Royal Little, as mentioned by Luke Johnson. It will be signed by Tim Price and myself. And in order to win, we need the answer to this question. What is the name of the infamous person who set up the Securities Exchange Company 100 years ago this year? So, what is the name of the infamous person who set up the Securities Exchange Company 100 years ago this year? Please send your answer via email to 100 at sotmpodcast.com. So that's the number 100, 100, at sotmpodcast.com. So sotmpodcast is all one word. So send your answer there. We will pick the winner at random on the 24th of July, and we will obviously let you know in the future episode. So good luck, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.